Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Now would you welcome uh, Melissa Osmond as she comes and reads the scripture. Melissa is coming to us straight out of the nursery, toddler area, helping there, and uh, they also, and doesn't have, a, nobody spit up on her today, and she also leads one of our young couple small groups, so. Good morning. This is from Mark. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all of the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you are who, go- you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the laws mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Thank you. Lord, thank you for this scripture text. Thank you for the story of what you went through. Lord, I pray that as we look at it today, that your spirit would come and you would touch each and every one of us at the point we need to hear and uh, that we would experience you more today. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's moment in our text, uh, taken out of the end of chapter 14 and the end of chapter 15, we skipped a small part in there, is this picture of the moment that Jesus' life turned on a dime. 
the moment his life was turned upside down, going from this place in his life where he walks into Jerusalem, the crowds are flocking after him, he's had these interactions with the religious leaders, and he's stood up to them in a way that they feel like they can't publicly confront him anymore. He is riding this wave of fame, and all of a sudden, in a moment, he's defamed. It goes from fame to being defamed. And we get to see this in Jesus. And Tim Keller actually talks about the end of Mark 14 this way. He says, In life, rarely do we find moments that are more dramatic than when, uh, than, a, than a trial, when someone's on trial for their life. And in those trials, normal, we rarely see something more dramatic than when the person who's on trial for their life takes the stand themselves. And Jesus, in our text today, takes the stand in a way that I think is more dramatic, more profound than almost anybody in all of history. And then in the chapter 15 that we looked at, we see Jesus after he's gone to Pilate being mocked, being stripped, being spit upon, uh, naked, naked and crucified, being whipped, just completely humiliated by the religious leaders, by the, the Roman leaders and by the crowds that were once following him just a few moments ago. And we often read this as a just a painful chapter in history, a painful chapter in, chapter in Jesus' life where this great leader, and, and if you believe in who he says he is, then this God who comes to earth to save us, who is unfortunately reaping this drastic burst of ferociousness. And what is it about this circumstance that causes that ferociousness to come out? Today we're going to try to examine the text uh, by looking at the text from four different angles. We're going to look at it from how Jesus cuts through to the to really stay, tell us who he is very clearly. We're going to also get to see how he exposes a deep cutting truth about us and who we are at the depth of our heart. And then we're going to see this paradox, these two things put together in this text that really, they make a profound difference for us. And we're going to close by just saying how that profound difference can really impact our lives. So let's look at it this way first then. Jesus is cutting to the heart of who he is. As we look at this text... Jesus is being hauled off into this trial that is really a mockery of justice at every single level. If you understand Jewish culture, he's being hauled off not to the place where the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling party, met and held their trials in a public place, but he's being hauled off to the high priest's home. This is against Jewish law. Not only that, but he's being tried in the middle of the night when Jewish law says that if you're going to follow the law, you have to try them publicly during the day. All of this is a travesty of justice, even from the leader's perspective of what the fairness of law is for them. And it's almost humorously dismaying as we look at this text and we see the leaders actually going above and beyond, trying as jurors, as prosecutors, to try to find people who can agree. And it says they can't find anybody who agrees on the testimony against Jesus. And for some of us, I think we find that difficult to believe, and maybe a few of us even find that to make this text seem suspect, because when we ask the question, how could they not find somebody to agree when it's at the home, in the dark, of the leader who is trying to go against Jesus and all of his cohorts, it would seems like it would be easy to find two people who would agree. And so we think the text is suspect. But I only have to go back a little ways in my life to the multiple times I've led meetings with really, really high tension. 
And I've seen people who are all on the same side of an issue, angry over an issue, not be able to agree. The, the, the biggest for me, the most stark example was a, a particular homeowners association meeting I led one time where we had a couple of leaders, uh, five different families who were trying to support this guy who was trying to illegally take property and sell it for his own benefit from the homeowners association. And they all got up really angry and they couldn't even agree on their testimony. And at, at some point in the meeting, the whole crowd, even the simple, even the sympathizers were sitting there shaking their heads and literally out loud snickering and laughing because these five guys who were all trying to get the same thing, all of them successful businessmen couldn't agree. And that's what we're seeing happen in this text. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of anger, but it just doesn't stop there. When they can't get people to agree, we see in this text that the jurors themselves start to become the people who testify against Jesus. And even then they can't agree, and that's still not good enough. So in in verse 61, we see the high priest make this last-ditch attempt, the judge himself make this last-ditch attempt to condemn Jesus. And the text reads this. It says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory. Now this text is a really easy one to misunderstand because it has a lot of Jewish culture specific things in it. So let me explain it to you. When the high priest says to Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? In their thinking of that day, the Messiah was not a divine figure. It was merely a human person who would come and lead the nation of Israel to throw off their oppressors and back to their glory as a nation. So when Jesus answers the high priest's question saying, I am, he's simply making a political statement, not unlike many of the rebels, even some during Jesus' lifetime, who rose up trying to throw off Roman oppression. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I am. He goes on and says, "This uh, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of glory. And this is something that everyone in the room would have understood. It is a very specific reference to Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, we see Daniel having this image, uh, this dream of the future in which he sees God sitting in his courtroom in heaven on his throne and the Son of Man comes and is seated at his right hand. And the text in Daniel 7 says that the Son of Man is given all authority, all power to judge all the earth and everybody should worship him. This is a very clear claim to being divine, to being God himself. And not only that, but the clouds of glory aren't just little puffy things that we like to sit out on a nice day and watch go by and imagine that we see a duck or a bird or a dog in the clouds. These are actually referring to the very essence of the glory of God. The the clouds that are the essence of the glory of the presence of God himself. And to this claim... You see, Jesus didn't even have to say that. He could have stopped at just the I am, but he went further. And everyone present in that room understood Jesus to be saying, I am God himself. I am all powerful. While you stand here acting like you are my judges, I'm your judge and I'll be back. Schwarzenegger wasn't the first. Really, that's what he's saying. In this text, 
And he didn't have to go that far. And the high priest, we say, ripping his clothes, which in Jewish culture in the Old Testament is the, the greatest sign of outrage and anger or, or grief over sin or injustice or, and everything, all hell breaks loose. Everything starts to go downhill. The jurors who were standing in judgment of him, the respected leaders of Israel, the ruling party, they stand up and they go ballistic and they start spitting on him and they blindfold him and they hit him and they challenge him to prophesy to who, who hits you. Tell us who hits you. They want him to do these magic tricks for them. And, and then they turn him over to be beaten by the Jewish guards. And it continues to go downhill from there. We see in the next text portion of the text that we skipped over, Pilate, him, him before Pilate, the Roman governor, and he's getting sentenced. And during that time, he's getting scourged. And the scourging was a, a whip that was uh, many, many lashes at the end of. And each one of those lashes at the end of the whip was embedded with shards of glass or metal or rocks that would just grip the flesh and tear it apart intended to weaken the victims so that they wouldn't last that long on the cross. And we see them taking, him, t- taking Jesus and dressing Him in the, this mock purple robe and putting a crown of thorns on Him and spitting on Him and taking, taking a switch and hitting Him on the head, driving those thorns deeper and deeper into His skull, all in front of 600 soldiers gawking and mocking and laughing and cheering. Why such a strong reaction. What's the trigger that flips things so quickly, resulting in such ferocious, awful violence? You know, sure, in the past, we've looked at the religious leaders and the Roman leaders, and we've talked about how their view of faith was so corrupted, it was so rules-oriented and religious instead of a, a real vital relationship. And we've talked about and seen, even as we looked at the eyewitness accounts and, and history, how the, how the religious leaders were oftentimes pursuing power. But if we were to look at those people today, if we were to be back then with them and look at them in the present time, we would see most of these men as just really good men. Because the way they got to be in the Sanhedrin was that they got to be great teachers of faith, great teachers of morality, and got this huge following of people who loved them, and that's the way they got to be where they were at. They were respected, good men in society. And what could happen in that environment that would make them become so fierce, so ugly, for them to lose it in anger and forsake in brutality even the laws that they preached to uphold. What is it about that? And it's really all because Jesus says, I am God and I am the ultimate judge. In them and the mockers in the subsequent passage, we see a a deep cutting truth about our own heart in this. So in May of 1998, living in Tulsa, about ready to move to Oregon. And uh, I'm walking out from my last day of work at my job. And our church at the time had just purchased a new 89,000-square-foot facility, and we had moved in for services there. But our offices still weren't finished in the new facility, so we were actually officing out of this uh, 60-story skyscraper. And it was a quarter of a mile walk to the parking lot. And on my last day, the senior pastor's name is Joel, that I'd been working with for seven years uh, decides to walk out to the parking lot for me. We're just chit-chatting. We're having some good memories. And we get to the cars. 
And just as he's about to say goodbye, he says something that to this day I don't 100% fully understand what he meant, and yet God used it to speak into my life. He said this, he said, Ross, you always love to keep your options open. And when he said that, I just went, I don't get it. What do you mean? I've been so faithful here through so much difficulty. Yeah, I'd actually, I'd looked at a couple jobs during that time period, during that six years, actually on staff, seven years at the church, and one was a, one was a job that I thought God was calling me to church plant, and it wasn't, so we just explored that and said no to it. And then I had another job that was, I was asked to submit a resume, but I was so faithful there, I was going, what do you mean leaving your options open? What does that mean? But as I began to ponder that over the next few years, because even though it didn't make sense and there was a bit of me that was even a little bit offended by it, I felt like God was in it. As I began to ponder it, I began to see that there was this part in my heart that wasn't fully committed. There was a part in my heart that always went through life wanting to still be in that seat of saying, well, I know this is what God called me to be, but this doesn't seem to be working and I want to be in the role of being the judge and I want to keep balanced. I want to keep my options open. That's a little bit like a a safety in football who never commits. You know, a safety in football, they never, they never, they never commit to the run just in case the quarterback is faking it. But then they never commit to the pass just in pace, just in case the quarterback actually hands it off. And they play in this non-committal, balanced place in life, and they never commit. And we all know, if you've been around sports or been around life, that you can't be a great safety in football unless you're willing to commit. Unless you're willing to get off balance and go one direction, you'll never make a great play. You'll always just be mediocre at best in life. The problem with Jesus' statement in this text is that He says it doesn't matter what you think about me or about life. It doesn't matter who you think you are. I'm the Messiah. I'm God. I'm the ultimate judge. And you have to deal with that absolute in life. And this really exclusive claim of Jesus is really troubling for us. It creates in every single one of us this tension to, that we wrestle with it. We don't want to be that committed. I mean, look at our society. Our society talks all the time as one of the worst things in life to be judging someone else, right? We balk at that all the time. And there's a complaint that in many ways is legitimate a lot of times about Christianity, that Christianity is this this exclusive judging faith of other people. And we've talked about how when we get caught in religiousness and and we get caught in the rules and we get caught in the self-performance of religion that we can so easily become that person who's judging instead of the Christ-like person person that actually loves across all differences. But we struggle with that. We try to slice life right down the middle. And even if we decide that we're not going to mock people like the crowds did because they don't know how to deal with this claim, we end up like Peter, oftentimes at the beginning of this passage who the text says he's following at a distance, fearful of being judged. He's following, but he's following at a distance. 
And he's not all in. And the mocking in chapter 15 shows us our own hearts and reveals the depth of hostility that really is a part of all of us. It's the part of me that wanted to keep my options open instead of being all in. And Jesus makes these incredibly huge claims that I'm God, I'm the only true judge, I'm the only way to the Father. And following Jesus is all about our heart response to those huge, exclusive claims that God makes to our life. So we mock or we preserve balance. Let me give you a couple examples of how this works even in life. So there's an author, Anne Rice, uh, of, of um, Interviews with a Vampire frame, fame. And she, for most of her life, was a very diehard secularist. But in the early 2000s, she's actually researching as a secularist for a book she wants to write, a historical fiction book she wants to write, which is now out in the market called Christ the Lord, um, what's the full title, Out of Egypt. And what she's actually writing and trying to study there is she's trying to write a historical fiction about the time when, of life when Jesus would have been going down to, Jeru- down to Egypt as a child and then back as a child. And we have no really written records, so she's, it's just going to be completely a fiction thing. But as she's studying for this, she's, she's preparing herself. And as a good writer who's going to write historical fiction, she's going to all the historical scholars of Jesus in that time period. And especially because she's a secularist, she's going to the secular scholars about Jesus in that time period. And in the process as she's preparing for this, she actually converts to Christianity. And she makes these two statements that were key observations for her. She said as she studied all these secular scholars and she read things like the Gnostic Gospels and all the stuff around Da Vinci Code and so many other things like that, she discovered that none of them could put a credible credible evidence together to prove who they were trying to prove Jesus was, which in the secular world, the people who are studying Jesus are trying to prove that the Gospels are really not eyewitness accounts. They're really just legends, and they're trying to get behind that stuff to discover who the real Jesus was because their presupposition going into writing about this stuff is that Jesus is just this nice teacher, this nice person who got, who just got crushed by the politics of his day in an evil way. And she came out of this study, intense study, saying she could not find any scholarly credible argument because most of the arguments made were based upon conjecture or most of the arguments were made that were made were based upon texts that were far too old, far too far removed from Jesus' time to be credible. And there was no link historically back to Jesus' time. So that was one of them. But more importantly... One of the biggest things that influenced in her decision to become a follower of Christ, she actually doesn't take the term Christian anymore because she feels like there's too much baggage for that. But as a follower of Christ, she was aghast when she studied these secular historians of their attitudes towards Jesus. These people who had dedicated their life to studying Jesus and that historical time period ranged in emotion in their opinion of Jesus from pity to outright sheer despising hatred. And she asked herself this question. She said, how many people that go into Elizabethan studies hate Queen Elizabeth? And she couldn't reconcile the two. And it began to make her think, what is about this that these people who want to study Jesus are so antagonistic towards him? And the answer, 
is really in our text. The claims that Jesus is exclusive, is, his exclusive claims are so outrageous, so thoroughly encompassing. We want to hate them. We want to diminish them. We want to modify them. We want to make them more balanced or reasonable because they force us into this all-or-nothing committed position. You see, it's easy to deal with Jesus as a teacher pointing us to God. It's easy to deal with Jesus as a teacher of wisdom, of great parables, of an amazing communicator in his age, of great wisdom, of a person who was caring, who loved across boundaries and all, who wants to heal us. It's great, it's easy to deal with him that way. But when he says, I am God, I am Savior, I'm the judge, I'm the only way, we want to keep our options open. You see, other teachers say, this is the truth and this is the way to go. And Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And either he's a lunatic who we should despise, or he is who he says he is, and we should bow and give our entire life to him. The second example that kind of illustrates this, uh, how this takes over our life is, is even just in our chapter, in our text today, in chapter 15 especially, when you notice the tone of the mocking going on, through the mocking, we see the, the religious leaders and the Romans looking at Jesus basically saying, you couldn't be the king. You couldn't be the Messiah. You certainly can't be God because you're too weak. If you were divine, I couldn't do this to you. You must be a lunatic is the tone of their mocking. And if we look at the crowds and the rest of the people and even some of the followers, I think there was mocking, but I think it's almost more of a cheering, taunting mocking that so often affects us in our faith even. They're basically saying, you're God. You healed people. You raised Lazarus from the dead. You turned water into wine. Come on, Jesus, show your stuff. Come off the cross and show us once and for all who you really are so that everyone will follow you. Have you ever been there in your own relationship with God talking, him to, talking to Him like that? Come on, show your stuff. Prove yourself. Behind both of these views is a view of weakness and pain that tanks us all. Because we think if you're really God, then you would be strong and you would never be weak. If we are really godly following him, then we will always be strong. We will never be weak. We will never be vulnerable. We'll always be happy. We'll always be healthy and we'll never face suffering. And the mockery in this text shows us that we can't as humans stand the difficulty and the pain and the disappointment that so often goes on in life without beginning to believe that God can't be loving. And we get hard instead of soft in weakness and pain. And we take on an air of, uh, an air of superiority, uh, reasserting our position of the, as the judge of truth and the judge of all life because mocking always requires superiority. And when you put yourself in that role as the judge, it causes you to miss the very thing God is doing. Because isn't it ironic and interesting that in this text we see them mocking Jesus for his weakness and suffering, for his great claims and not saving himself, not coming off the cross. And the irony of it is that God is indeed saving us and doing the most amazing, greatest work 
in all of history in that horrible, weak moment. And that brings us to a paradoxical truth that we need to reconcile and look at because it'll change, it changes our lives. You see, we all know we don't like it when somebody judges us. There's nothing like somebody judging you or me that raises our ire more, right? We just get angry. We get frustrated. And while Jesus declares that He is the judge, in this text He's also saying and also showing us that He's the judge who is being judged, who's taking the judgment for us. Not just for His own actions, but He's willingly taken all the judgment for all that we deserve ourselves. We see Him in weakness taking beatings when He could have ended them. We see Him being accused wrongly when He's already proven that He has the ability to debate and prove that He's right, and yet He remains silent. He's allowing Himself to be nailed to a cross, and He's staying on that cross to the very end when He could have come down, just as the crowds were taunting Him to do. And He shows us in this His ultimate commitment to perfectly go all the way for you and I. To take every last ounce of judgment. To uncover every hidden crevice of sin and to pay the price for that. So that when we commit to following Him, we can be assured that He has no limit of His love. That He has no limit of His power to keep us to lead us, to preserve us through difficulty, to bring His life and His beauty to bear in our lives and the lives of people around us. So He's not the judge who judges harshly. And when you really think about it, think about this. You don't really have a problem with people judging, do you? Because we all know the truth about ourselves. We know there's areas of our lives that deserve judgment. What we have a problem with is someone who judges us and walks away. Someone who is unwilling to love us and stand with us in facing the difficult things of our life. Someone who judges us out of a sense of superiority and then sits back with these condemning eyes just waiting for us to fail and never measure up. And the power of the judge being the one who is judged for us. The power of Jesus is that Jesus comes to us in our sin, in our dirtiness, in our failure, in our shame. And He tells us like it is. But He does so tenderly. Because He's experienced the full measure of our pain. And He's demonstrated the tenacity of His love to not just go partway with us and then abandon us but to stay with us the whole way. You see, in Jesus declaring that He is the judge, He's saying to us, there are indeed absolute values and truth in life that you can't just live life the way you want because I'm the judge. And yet, the absolute has become a person. A person who tenderly, lovingly, formidably loves us. So when you look at it like that, and when we break that reality a part of us, there's, there's four brief things I want to talk about that, that really change in us, that God brings change in us because of it. The first thing is when you really wrestle with that paradox, 
you'll no longer ever to be able to be able to be a person who sits in judgment on other people. Because Jesus had all the power and he gave it up to save his enemies. That you'll always end up needing to be a person to, to love your enemies as well. In fact, if you don't love your enemies, then you are not following Jesus. Because that's what he did. And it's not just coexisting with our enemies. It's not just being cordial and nice to our enemies, but loving them. Having relationship above differences. It's, it's answering the question, how can we rub shoulders with these people who attack us, who are evil towards us, who want to undermine us, who we just don't like, who have wronged us? And how can we have a meaningful, caring relationship with Him? It goes deeper than that even. Because you see, Jesus... Uh, if you see Jesus as judged in your place, then, then when you forgive other people, you won't be able to be like all of us usually still are. Because when we forgive people, we walk away and... But there's still a part of us that wants to be justified, right? There's still a part of us in our heart that says, God, just give me enough blessing to prove that I was right. And, and if the people we have forgiven go through negative consequences because of their sin, we're not really too unhappy about that, are we? And yet God wants us to be different than that. Number two, when we understand that Jesus is the one who is the judge and He took all the judgment, we'll fear falling into sin less and be more free to engage in mission. Think about it. When you're still living internally as judges in your own life, instead of letting God be the sole judge, you live life and faith afraid of falling into sin. Now, there's a certain amount of that that's healthy because sin is damaging. Sin is painful. Sin hurts us. It hurts other people as well. That's what sin does. But when you're still living as your own judges, we tend to live life in a default mode of avoiding sin more than taking on the risk of being involved in mission with the people who we hate or we're enemies or do things that tempt us because to be around them tempts us to get angry and blow up and to be around them tempts us sometimes to do things that we know are sin and we shouldn't do. And so when we're still living in this position of judges in our heart, we fear so much falling that our default position becomes avoiding falling into sin rather than, rather than enjoying and seeing God save others through us. How can we live our own lives? How can we teach our children to live their lives with the freedom to winsomely hang out with friends who, where temptation exists? where sin exists, and love them to freedom. Part of that answer is found in the next point. The third point of the thing that applies to us is, is when we see Jesus this way, we'll stop judging. You'll stop judging yourself all the time. Some of you are always beating yourself up, right? You know that. You're not smart enough. You're not happy enough. You're not good enough. You're not disciplined enough. You sin too much. You, you fail here. Whatever it is, you're constantly judging yourself. Do you realize that you have no right as a follower of Jesus to do that? The only person who has the authority to judge you like that is Jesus. And when he had the greatest opportunity to do so, 
when it was our pain that was spitting on Him, when it was our pain that was lashing Him, when it was our pain that was beating Him, when it was our pain that was creating false accusations against Him caused by our sin, He remained silent about your faults. In fact, the only thing He says is, forgive them. We need to stop acting like we're still on trial. The verdict is in. He loves you. He accepts you the way you are right now. You see, the more I grasp this truth, the more free I am to have relationship within situations where I would be tempted to blow up at people who have betrayed me or to people who have hurt me, or in situations where I'd be tempted to fall into temptation. I'm more free to be there because temptation loses much of its power when I no longer fear not being good enough. In the Living the Quest after the message this week, we're going to give you an opportunity to meditate on Paul in a text that where he describes how this looks in his life and how he lives this truth out. But the fourth point and the last point, the worship team can come. Jesus just doesn't suffer for us. He suffers with us. In His trial and the sentence that He went through, He suffers every temptation, every pain, every condemning thought, every violation that you have ever experienced, every pain you have ever felt. And He identifies with the victims of injustice. Those crushed by... by bad politics at the office or the economy or political powers. He, anybody who's ever been set up, beaten, whether verbally or physically, and hung out to dry, Jesus identifies with you at the deepest level. He suffers with you there. He identifies with the bullied. He identifies with those who have had their names smeared, told they're ugly, told they're worthless, cast aside. When you see Jesus this way, compassion rises in our hearts towards every person around us. We'll be unable to restrain ourselves in caring for those who feel like they need to hide because they're not good enough. They need to hide because they sin too much. They need to hide for fear of rejection. Compassion will rise up in us to care for the poor and the oppressed, those who are cast aside, those who are ugly, those who are uncool. And through us, God will heal many. God will transform lives that we never thought could be transformed. And He's already beginning to do it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us to deal with these exclusive claims that You make to us. And that Lord, just as for me through... um, through the comment of somebody else that I didn't understand that you allowed that comment to expose areas of my life where I still retain that position of judge. Lord, that you'd help us release that to you. And Lord, help us to see you rightly so that we don't beat ourselves up. We don't feel like we're on trial. Lord, take all the pain all those condemning thoughts that race through our minds, that race through our hearts, that we've put there, that other people have put there. Lord, give us freedom to accept the depth of Your love. In Jesus' name.
Amen. As we're ending our worship with a couple songs, I want you to be thinking about this and maybe responding for prayer during that time. There'll be some people praying in the, in the back over here ready to pray for you or turn to a friend. And if you're one who judges yourself all the time, if you're the one who condemns yourself all the time, just turn to someone and say, would you pray for me that I'd stop doing that and that I'd receive the love of God? And let them pray for you and just see if God comes to you in that moment. And if you're here today and you've, you've wrestled with these exclusive claims because you feel like uh, for Jesus to make that kind of claim on your life and you've chosen not to follow him because of that, for Jesus to make that kind of claim on your life is just outrageous, ponder. Ponder the fact that he's not only the judge, but he took all the judgment for you. That he's not that kind of person that you get angry at when you feel judged, but he's the kind of person who comes to you and says, yeah, this is true about you. This is sin. But I'm here to love you and walk with you. And let's worship. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.